as we come now uh, to the scripture, you will find printed in your bulletin a prayer of illumination. Uh, this prayer of illumination is, is our pleading really with the Holy Spirit that he would open the scripture to us. So if you'll take a look at that, we're going to pray this together uh, before I come to, to read the scripture. We pray before, not afterwards. We can pray afterwards. It's traditional in churches to read the scripture and ask God to add his blessing to the reading of the word. I always think, why ask him to add it? Why not ask him ahead of time? Uh, so that while you're actually reading it, there's that uh, blessing that... Uh, that we all need. So this prayer of illumination that God would enable us to see what is here. Again, we're dependent upon him for everything. Let us together pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Keep us from every distraction and doubt. Cause us to believe all that your word teaches. Enable us to do all that your word commands. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Turn please to Colossians and chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to read again, and I say again because we've been reading this for a month or so. I want to read verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, please. Verses 1 through 17. Then we'll, hopefully if God will help us, take up just one expression from that passage. Colossians in chapter 3, please. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want, if God will help me, to just take up this expression beginning in the middle of verse 13. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We've been thinking about this already. And the things we sang and the things which we have prayed. This forgiveness 
he says that we're to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Forgiveness is the very foundation, if you will, of, of our Christian experience, our Christian lives, our reconciliation with God. There's no forgiveness without it. Because of our sin, we've incurred a debt. That debt needs to be dealt with. If we're to have relationship with God, if we're to be reconciled to Him, Jesus paid the debt. He did what we owed in love. He loved as we ought to have loved. Thus, His righteousness is a gift to us that that, that debt is paid for us, he paid the penalty, uh, that which we incurred by not obeying God, by offending him. Um, we couldn't pay either in our sinful condition. We can't love as we ought to love. We can't love God as we ought. We can't love one another as we ought. And, and we can't even pay the, the penalty for that because the penalty for disobeying God is eternal. It's eternal death. It's living forever. It's having this existence, if you will, not under the blessing of God, but under the wrath of God. And since it's eternal, we can't pay it. To pay it is to pay it forever. So we're really stuck. We can't pay. Jesus came to pay. He did pay. Thus all who trust in him, that eternal punishment is taken in him because he is able to stand for us all. That's why the Bible is able to say of God that he's both just and the justifier of all who believe. He's just. He, he simply can't uh, uh, sweep our sins under the rug, put them behind his back, cast them in the sea as far as the east is from the west. When they exist, how can one who is just simply acquit the guilty? How can he overlook that? One of the difficulties that uh, we've had in the last few weeks with the Lockerbie bomber being released to go home to Libya is what about justice? This would have been no problem at all if there is someone who could have stood for him and if could, could have filled out his sentence. If there was really somebody that we could all agree on who could take his punishment and, and, and could stand for him really and justice really be accomplished, everyone would have said, well, fine. But there's this question, this tension. Oh, yes, compassion, but oh, yes, justice. What do we do about that? Well, God is able to be perfect in both justice and compassion, both holiness and love, both righteousness and grace, because Jesus is able to stand for us all because he's worth us all. He's worth more than us, the very Son of God. So he takes it, and in his taking of of sin's penalty, then we're free, trusting in him, to go, to be pardoned, to be released, to have that debt canceled, because he took it. Justice done, compassion granted. Now we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven that great debt, and thus now... As those who are in the image of God being renewed in the image of God, being conformed to the image of Christ, as those who have been forgiven, we're to forgive. He says, forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. You must forgive. It isn't an option in that sense, just like that passage we looked at a few minutes ago from Matthew chapter 18, that that parable. If we know how much we've been forgiven, how can we not be forgiving. If we've received that forgiveness of that great debt of billions, how, how can we not forgive those who simply have cost us thousands? Uh, 
the logic behind that is impeccable. We really can't escape the shame of not forgiving when we've really been forgiving, forgiven as we, as we really, as we really have. And you see, the basis for our forgiveness is that we've been forgiven. Now, recently, if you've been again following the news of uh, the governor of South Carolina. Governor Sanford, who had an affair, and his wife, Jenny, made this statement about that situation, that she was going to forgive her husband because she said, if you don't forgive, you become angry and bitter, and I don't want to become that. Now, it is true that forgiveness helps to assuage anger and bitterness, but that isn't why we forgive. Now, I don't know this woman. She may be a fine Christian. She may have gone on and expressed faith in Christ and why she really forgives because she's been forgiven and all of that. And I, I just read one media report and thus, who knows what she said. Uh, but that's all I have. On the basis of that, you see, well, it is true that forgiveness helps assuage bitterness and anger. And I say helps assuage it. There are times when still that returns even after we've for- forgiven another because we often live with the long-term consequences of having been sinned against. And so we see those. A person who was sexually abused may have forgiven the abuser but still lives with the emotional trauma of that. And when that comes back, still bitterness and anger must be fought. And yes, forgiveness is the solution to that or a solution to that. But but still, we live with the long-term consequences of that. Just a simple act of forgiveness doesn't mean that those things are gone forever. But still, we don't forgive because it helps us. The motivation to forgive is that we've been forgiven. And indeed, we entrust the one who has hurt us to God. And he will be the judge. And he will mete out justice if necessary. Perhaps he meets it out in Christ. So that that person may well be a believer. And they're forgiven. And justice done in Jesus or in judgment, but we trust him to that. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Wonderful byproduct, wonderful fruit of forgiveness is that it alleviates bitterness and anger, but that isn't the motivation. We don't do it because it helps us. We do it because it's glorifying to God. We do it because it's helpful to the other. Remember, this is the same person, the forgiving person who's compassionate and kind. This is the same person who's humble and meek. This is the same person who's patient and forbearing and then forgiving. We forgive because we've been forgiven and we forgive just as we've been forgiven. That is freely. This little Greek word used in, it's not such a little one, but it's a Greek word, um, used in this passage in Colossians chapter 3 is one of a couple different words in Greek that's used for forgiveness. And this one is quite instructive here because it really means to give a gift of grace. It's, the word is charizomai. Uh, if you're a person who hangs around churches, you might know the word charis. It means grace. That word comes from the forgiving word here. means to give a gift to someone, to cancel their debt freely, to give them that gift to pay that debt. And you know, when we forgive, what we do is absorb the consequences, absorb the pain, absorb the hurt. 
as God did for us. Because while we have been freely forgiven, it wasn't costless. It simply doesn't cost us anything. We pay no penance for our forgiveness. We pay nothing for our forgiveness. We give nothing for our forgiveness. Uh, it's, it's given freely, but it costs the forgiver. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver. The forgiver is the one who has been hurt. The forgiver is always the one who cancels the debt. The forgiver is always, therefore, the one who bears it. So it's given freely, but costly. As God gives it freely, but it costs him. We must understand that as we, as we forgive. And of course, this forgiveness of God is in some sense, and hear that word, some sense, conditional. Not everyone is forgiven because of the work of Christ. Only those who confess and repent. Only those who, say, who agree with God and say, yes, um, I, I agree with you that I'm, that I'm a sinner and that I've sinned against you and I'm sorry for that and I turn from my sin and I come to you and I ask your forgiveness and I receive it. Because you see, the ultimate goal, this doesn't always happen in human beings, but the ultimate goal with, to for, with forgiveness is reconciliation. It's, it's, that, it's that conduit through which two people who were once estranged are now reconciled. We see that in our relationship with God. Forgiveness is the conduit through which uh, we are reconciled. Once estranged because of our sin, forgiveness then enables reconciliation. Me coming to God saying, I get it, I understand, I've sinned against you, please forgive me. God saying, yes, I forgive you in Christ Jesus. And thus forgiveness leads to reconciliation. And so in that sense, for forgiveness to, to bear its perfect fruit, there must be confession and repentance and all of that. Now let's think about this forgiving of each other. What does that really mean? Well, let me get some help from an old 17th century friend. This is uh, Thomas Watson, if you're interested. You should be. This is a book. In fact, this is my mom's book. I stole this from her library. Um, actually, I didn't steal it. Well, I told her I had it. Um, the, um, this is, she, she's, she, she's the precursor to my love of old dead people. But um, in this book, it started out in a book called The Body of Divinity, and now it was pieced off into his book called The Lord's Prayer. He wrote it in 1692. Uh, my mother continues to tell me she didn't buy the original copy uh, originally, but close. Um, he asked this question. He says, how can we forgive others when only God can forgive us? And he says, in every breach of the second table of the law, meaning that which is against one another. There are two things, an offense against God and a trespass against man. So as far as it's an offense against God, he only can forgive. But as far as it's a trespass against man, we may forgive. And then he asked this question, when do we forgive others? That is, how do we know we've forgiven others? When has that forgiveness really taken place? And here's how he puts it. He says, when we strive against all thoughts of, re of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief but wish them well, grieve, when we grieve at their calamities, when we pray for them, when we seek reconciliation with them, and when we show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, this is gospel forgiving. He says, first, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge then we've forgiven them. When we're not 
hoping to harm them. When we're not seeking to, 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 to have them hurt as much as we hurt. So it isn't we go to them and we say, oh, you've hurt me. And we don't go to them because we, um, we want them to feel hurt as well. He says, when, when, you, when you give out, when you, when you strive against all thoughts of revenge, uh, Jesus would put that like this. I'm sorry, not Jesus, but the Apostle Paul put that like this in Romans chapter 12. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but re- leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And, Tom, and uh, uh, Watson goes on to say, we know that we've forgiven when we will not do our enemies harm. That is, that we don't desire them to hurt in any way, that we don't speak ill of them, we don't desire for them to be hurt in any way. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, See that no one repays another evil for evil. But then Watson goes on to say, We know we've forgiven when we actually wish them well, when we desire their success, and we really know that we've uh, forgiven them. Uh, Jesus said, Bless those who curse you. Uh, Watson goes on to say, we know we've forgiven them when we actually grieve at their calamities. That is, they're actually sorry when they suffer. Uh, you know, it's easy when someone has hurt you and you find them to be hurt as well to rejoice in that. You haven't forgiven if that's the case. Forgiving means that when your enemy, when the one who has hurt you is going through difficulty, then ah, you're grieved because of that. The proverb says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Watson says we're to pray for them. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Watson says we're to seek reconciliation uh, with them. Romans chapter 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Watson says that we're to show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, that is to help them. Even when we find someone who has hurt us and and we find them in difficulty, our heart should be not to seek revenge, not to rejoice in their calamity, not to do them harm, but rather to be free to help them. Then we've known, then we know that we've forgiven them. You know, when we think about having been forgiven by God, how is it that we're forgiven? Well, he doesn't seek revenge anymore. There's no longer vengeance against us, no longer wrath against us. Uh, he loves us, cares for us. He might discipline us, but it's all in love. It's all for our good. It isn't punishment in that, in that sense. It's discipline, training to help us. He doesn't rejoice in our calamities, but he comes to help us. He doesn't wish us harm, but wishes us good. He's kind to us. In all our difficulties, still he comes to help us. We have been forgiven, forgiven by him. Now, I could just leave it there and say, go forgive. But forgiveness can be a bit complicated, just like all of these other virtues. Uh, For instance, we're to put on compassion, the scripture says. But but the question arises is, well, what, what does it mean to be compassionate towards someone who's just simply lazy and won't help themselves in any way? What's compassion really mean there? That's not an easy question. We're to be meek, and, and the question comes, well, well, what's meekness when you're in relationship with a person who continues to take advantage of you? What, what's really best there? What does it mean to be meek there? And patience, what does it mean to be patience? What does it mean to bear with someone who, um, again, who simply takes advantage? Uh, what do we do in that regard? 
Uh, that's where I think Paul's helpful in this passage in Colossians 3, verse 14, where he says, put on love, which binds all of these together in perfect harmony. You see, love really is the deal. The question really is, what's really loving? Well, it's loving to be compassionate. It's loving to be kind. It's loving in, in the context of your life to have a humble stance toward another, to be meek, to be patient, to be forbearing, to be forgiving. But, 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 but in all of that, what, what really helps us in this is what's loving? Because each one of these, if they're true of us, causes us to be separated from ourselves in the sense that we're no longer thinking about ourselves but thinking about another. And so we're free. A compassionate person is free then to discipline well another. Because you're not doing it because of yourself, but you're doing it out of love for the other. A a kind person is free to rebuke another. Because you're not doing it out out of hurt, you're doing it out of kindness, out of love. Because that's really the very best thing to do. And so how is it then that, that we go about this whole thing of forgiving? Luke chapter 17, Jesus speaks to this. Verse 3, we read this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now that verse 3 is a little surprising to me. Uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins, I would have expected him to say, if your brother sins, forgive him. But he didn't. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, that doesn't need to sound as harsh as it may sound to us. There are gentle rebukes and there are stern rebukes. There's all kinds of rebukes. We hear that word rebuke and we think, it's, ooh, it's a harsh one. Not necessarily. It can be a soft rebuke. It can be as easy as, hey, you've hurt me. Let's talk about this. So Jesus says there are times, of course, when we go to our brother, go to our sister, go to this other one and say, you know, you've, you've, you've hurt me. And, 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 and so let's talk about this and to, to lay it out. Now there's always a caution, really two cautions, I would say, in going to another person about something that's hurt you. Number one is you really need to make sure it was really a hurt. Some of us are simply more sensitive than others. And there's sometimes that some things hurt us that maybe shouldn't. Maybe there was no offense really intended. And, and that's where the second part of this, where the Apostle Peter is helpful in First Peter in chapter 4 and verse 8. Uh, Peter writes, um, if I find it here, if I don't, there we go. He writes this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I mean, we need to realize that in relationship with each other, there's all kinds of things that are going to pop up. And we have to be careful. In being a patient, forbearing person means that we're not going to be touchy. And so we have to examine ourselves all the time. Jesus poignantly put it when he said, remember, paraphrasing, it's very easy to see the speck in your brother's eye even when you have a log in your own. What he meant by that is that if it's somebody else, then whew, it's easy to see. When it's you, it's not so easy to see. 
And so we have to be cautious with each other in relationships. We have to, to realize that just because we feel hurt doesn't mean that, that there was a real hurt. Uh, we may just simply feel it. And so we have to get good at discernment in ourselves. And that's why it's helpful to have a close friend who really knows us, whether that's a spouse or a close friend. When we can go and they know us and we can say, you know, this hurt me. Uh, is that real? Is this something I need to pursue? Because I can be oversensitive. There are some times in our lives that we're more sensitive than other times. We need to be aware of those times if we're under special stress or if we have illness or whatever that happens to be. And so we need to realize that we may be more sensitive at those times and just be cautious. We're still responsible. I noticed often with my children, just because someone was crying didn't mean that the other one was at fault. <laughs> and that's true for us as well. We must be cautious about that. And, and, and some things, therefore, even though they may hurt, we need to evaluate and ask the question, is this really worth it? Is this really something that's significant? Or, or is it just simply petty? Is this something that Peter would say, oh, love should cover that? Love does indeed cover cover a multitude of sins. Uh, By my wife's grace, if she confronted me every time I did something stupid or said something I shouldn't or or hurt her in some way, that would probably take up 90% of our conversation. I think it did, years two through nine. But uh, but, uh, perhaps I learned a bit and perhaps she realized it wasn't going to help. I don't know. But... um, but, but in the midst of that, you see, we're in relationship with each other. We're a bunch of sinners. We're a bunch of people. We need to take that into account. And we will say stupid things to each other. And we'll forget certain things. And, and certain things will happen. And so we're always in this process of evaluation. Do I just cover that? Do I just forget about that? Do I just not pay attention to that? Or, or do I confront that? That's the difficult thing. And there's, there's no book on this. I can't give you the, the three things, you see. And, and you just sort of measure them down. Now, it's helpful to ask the question, did this really break the relationship? Does this really damage the relationship? If it really damages the relationship and reconciliation, therefore, must happen, you simply can't cover it, you can't walk away from it, and your friends, you know, your, your closest confidant may say, yeah, this is something you ought to pursue, and, 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 and yes, then you can go to that person. Some of them are obvious and the great hurts in life, but some not so obvious. So we go, and you know, when you go to another person, at least three Maybe four things can happen. One is that you find out that you were wrong, that there wasn't a real hurt. The person offers what classically is called an apology, which is a defense. It doesn't have to be defensive. It can just simply say, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I remember that situation. No, here's what I meant. Oh. Or, 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 or that really didn't happen. Let me lay out the circumstances like this. Oh. I trust that's happened to you. I trust you've gone to another, maybe a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, and you say, this hurt me. And, and, and once it's all worked out, you realize, oh, okay, there's not necessarily anything to be forgiven here. I get it now. The only thing I'm sorry for is I didn't get it in the first place. And the other person, the only thing I'm sorry for is this hurt you. And you kind of hug and everything's cool. Um, but some of you hug. No. Um, the, um, the second thing that could happen is you go to this person, you tell them the situation, and they go, oh, I was completely unaware of that, but now I see your point. I'm really sorry. And forgiveness comes. Or it may be that you go to that person, they go, yeah, I, I know that. You're right. I knew it. I've known it. I did that. I said that. 
I broke that promise. Whatever it happens to be, you're right, and I'm sorry. It's confession. It's when you agree with the other person. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And again, forgiveness comes. And all of these things then that, 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 that Thomas Watson lays out for us, that, that we're not seeking revenge. We don't go to the other person saying, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to lay this on you so you can feel the same hurt I do and you can feel really bad and that's going to make me really happy when you feel really bad and I'm not going to feel good until you feel really bad. So here it is in all its glory. It's not about that. It's understanding and meekness and humility that we've been forgiven and so we forgive and it realizes that for this relationship to grow and prosper there must be reconciliation and now there isn't. And so, so I, I need to go to you. And, and my hope is that I go in such a way that you'll hear this and, and it'll get worked out and forgiveness will come and, and we'll be reconciled together. But you know there are times when we might go to another person and lay all of this out and the other person says to us, I don't care. I simply don't care. I did it. I don't care. I'm right in this. You're wrong in this. What do you do? Well, the Bible says you go to another friend and you lay it out before them and you say, say here's the situation. What's going on here? Give me some counsel. Am I right? Am I wrong about this? And if the person might say, do you know you're wrong about this? Then you drop it or at least you go back to the other person and you say, okay, I'm going to drop this. I've gotten some counsel and, and I'm the one that's, that's wrong here. But if, the, if your friend, this counselor, comes, says to you, well, you know, you know, you're right. You really need to get this worked out. This other person has sinned against you. So the two of you then go back to the person. They reject you again. You know the process I trust in Matthew 18 that, that Jesus speaks of, of going to the church and so forth and so on. But even in the midst of that, the big question is, what do you do? What does forgiveness mean then? in that kind of a context where there can be no resolution, where there can be no reconciliation, where there can be uh, nothing because the other person will not maybe even receive you. What do you do in that regard? Well, there's a debate in the Christian community about what forgiveness means in that. Can you forgive without confession and repentance? Is that real forgiveness? Because, because forgiveness, the goal of which is reconciliation. If, if the person won't receive you, then there really can't be reconciliation. So is that really forgiveness? And, and, and I don't know. All I know is this. That still, if that person refuses to repent and refuses to confess, we must still love them. We must still stand ready to be reconciled to them. We must, as the Apostle put it, as far as it depends upon us, as far as it depends on me, to live at peace with them. Jesus is pretty clear about even our relationships with our enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. That is, even those ones who have hurt you. You see, that's pretty much an enemy. Right? Someone who's against you. And Jesus says that we're to love them. And what does that mean? He says, well, it means this. Do good to those who hate you. Similar kinds of responses, one who has forgiven another. That is, you you seek their good. You you don't wish their calamities. You, You pray for them. As far as it depends upon you. Bless those who curse you, he says. So if someone hurts you, you can say you're going to bless them out. It means something very different to Jesus than it normally means to us. It means to bless means 
that you're going to speak well of them. He says, speak well of those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend to them, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be called sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. The Apostle lays that out again in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think often of myself, if I can only just rearrange my whole head, rearrange my whole heart, that when someone hurts me, rather than responding defensively, rather than responding in a way that wants vengeance or revenge or wants them to hurt or any of that, to think this is an opportunity to show that I belong to God. This is an opportunity that that Christ can live in me. And God is sovereign over these things. He could have stopped this hurt. How many hurts has he stopped? This one he didn't. So now, how am I going to respond what, what can I do here? Well, watch what I say. Watch how I respond. So that I respond in such a way that will actually do good to them. Not in a manipulative way, but in a sincere way. Because that's how God is to me. The scripture said that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ did good for us. <laughs> he died for us. That is amazing. And we're to love those who hurt us. Now, let's flesh this out uh, even more. What does this not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're not concerned at all about justice. The scripture says, Micah chapter 6, that we're to love justice. So it isn't that we just sort of give up on justice all the way. No, no, we understand what real hurt is. We don't say this was good. We don't, under, we don't simply just, just, just throw it away, if you will. We understand what justice really means, and we're bothered by that. Nor does it mean that there can be no consequences to the sins of others against people. Parents, you can forgive your children and still discipline them. I mean, could you imagine being a kid and, you, and, and your parent says, don't play in the middle of the street. So you play in the middle of the street. You run out to get your kid in the middle of the street, pick them up and you say, I forgive you. And if the kid thinks that forgiveness means there are no consequences, no discipline necessarily, the kid would say, that's great. I'm going back in the street. Because my parent is forgiving. No, no, no. There's forgiveness, not revenge, not wishing someone ill, not but discipline in love. God disciplines us in various ways. You might remember King David, 
sinned grievously against Uriah the Hittite, killed him, took his wife. Against Bathsheba, had an affair with her. And he was forgiven by God expressly. God says, the prophet Nathan says, God has forgiven you. However, the child won't live. However, there'll be difficulty in your family, one against another. Even before that, when the Israelites uh, were in the wilderness and they were at Kadesh Barnea and right ready to go into the promised land, they sent out spies. Caleb and Joshua, you remember, came back with a good report. And they said, we can do this. And all the other spies said, no, we can't. And the people listened to the ones who said, no, we can't. And they wanted to kill Caleb and Joshua. And God said to, to Moses, okay, that's it. I'm going to destroy this people. I'll raise up another people for you, Moses, and that'll be your glory. And, and Moses interceded on behalf of the people and said, oh, God, uh, forgive them. And God said, all right, I forgive them. But they won't go into the land. Consequences still. And we read in Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 6, this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then um, later in verse 10. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see, love forgives and does what's best. In fact, someone who has been forgiven, someone who is really sorry for their sins, someone who really has repented, is one who will go and do whatever he or she can to make it right. If you've slandered another and you realize it and you know that you're wrong, then, then what you would want to do is to go with all the people to whom you've told these lies to and you'll correct that if you possibly can, if you really understand that what you did was wrong. And if you've stolen from someone, you'll, you'll surely want to pay it back if you really understand that it was wrong and a sin against them. But yes, you can discipline. Yes, you can. A boss can forgive and fire if that's what's best to do. There is this expression, of course, that we forgive and forget. May I just tell you that's impossible because we're not stupid. Uh, forgetting, uh, someone once said there are three, three reasons why people forget. Number one is that some people are simply more inclined genetically to forget. Secondly, that age takes over at certain points in time and, and people forget. And for the life of me, I can't remember the third one. But, um, <laughs> but forgetting is a passive thing. There's nothing passive about forgiveness. It isn't just a passive letting go it's an active, and if we can put it in biblical language, it's an active not remembering. God says he'll remember our sins no more. God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget in that sense because he isn't forgetful. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Past, present, future, everything that is and everything that wasn't. He knows everything. He doesn't forget in that sense, but he remembers no more. In fact, there is an expression in the Old Testament where the scripture says that God remembered his covenant or God remembered his people. It doesn't mean that he had forgotten it and then scratched his head one day and said, oh yeah, that's right, they're mine. No, no. It means when he remembers that he's going to act on that. So when the Bible says he doesn't remember, he's not going to remember, it means he's not going to act. And so we don't forgive and forget 
When we forgive, it means we don't remember. That is, we don't deliberately call it to mind. That is, that when it comes to mind, we don't remember it. We don't act upon it. We must not remember, not bring it up, not wish harm to another, not seek revenge, but rather bless those who've hurt us. Pray for them. Wish them well. Desire their success and even work towards it. But you know, we must think too, this is a very practical addendum, that the relationship after forgiveness amongst human beings may take a while to really work well and be restored. And there may be some long-term consequences in that relationship. If someone borrows your car and negligently wrecks it, you can forgive them. But that doesn't mean you have to lend them your car again. If someone steals from you, you can forgive them. But it's probably not wise to make them your treasurer at that point. More seriously, if you were sexually abused as a child by your father or by your mother, you could forgive them. But that doesn't mean that you will let your children spend the night at their house. Right? We forgive. But we're also prudent in the midst of that. And we don't want to tempt another. We don't want to lead another into doing that which would be wrong again. And so in love, we are careful in all those relationships even ones that have, where forgiveness has taken place and reconciliation has happened. Because you see, forgiveness is a gift. It's given. Trust is something that's built up over time. We must remember that. Forgiving is not easy business. It's not for cowards. It's, it's only for those who've been forgiven. And the way that then we keep from bitterness and anger even after we've been even after we've forgiven another is by thinking of how we ourselves have been forgiven for you see we know that we can live with the long term consequences of the hurts that others have done to us Some of them, quite frankly, are so insignificant that we're just whiners, let's face it. But some of them are very, very significant. If someone has slandered you, your reputation might be shot. And you may have to live with that. If someone has abused you in certain ways, you may have to live with the emotional trauma of that. And it isn't something that simply goes away. It's really there. You may have lived, you may have been betrayed by another who's close to you. And while you're forgiven, still the pain of that may not go away. It may still be there. And the question is, how, how, do, we, how do we deal with that? You may be facing a situation where you're in that kind of a deal where, where someone has hurt you deeply and it's a real hurt and a significant hurt and everyone would agree with that and, and still there's no reconciliation. How do you respond? How do you stand in the midst of all that? And it all brings us back here 
The Apostle tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Wow. Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to be reminded of the Lord's death until he comes? Because his death informs our lives. When we declare the Lord's death, what are we declaring? We're declaring he died for us. Why did he need to do that? Because we're sinners and and we need someone to pay the debt and he paid the debt. So every time we declare the Lord's death, we're declaring our own sinfulness. And every time we're declaring our own sinfulness, we're declaring what we deserve. And every time we declare what we deserve, we declare our need that we need a savior, someone to come and pay the debt. And every time we declare the Lord's death, we're declaring the debt has been paid. And it's a reminder to us of who we are in the very presence of God. Creatures, yes. Sinners, yes. Forgiven, yes. And then we live out of that, knowing that we've been forgiven. We forgive. When the pain comes back, we remember the Lord's death. It's always interesting to me, and I can't make too much of this in front of you. I do it in my own head, but I can't talk about it because I don't know if it's right. <laughs> but it's in the Bible, in this expression, that when John, the apostle in the Revelation, saw Jesus, he saw the lamb as if he had been slain. He still had the marks. I don't know if they're painful. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a reminder of our sin that he bore. And any time we're accused, he holds up his hands. He says, look, it's done. I took it. We too, as we forgive, we remember he took it, thus we take. We remember he freed us, thus we free. We remember he pardoned us, us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in the same way he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples, and he says, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, pray for us. That we would hear, see, taste, smell, the declaration of the death of Christ. And in hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting that declaration, we may then know what he's done for us. May we live out of that forgiveness, first forgiven, and then forgiving. We lay before you, God, all of our hurts and pains caused by others and we forgive in Jesus name Amen
I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know that declaration, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in God's sovereign mercy and to receive and depend upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and receive and depend upon him that forgiveness that he freely gives and all those who desire then to live as ones who have been forgiven that who forgive that's true of you let me invite you to come section come down can come down the these aisles to my this aisle to my left this these two sections aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in the cup when you do Declare the Lord's death. Please come.